If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Nate Sheridan. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. I'm delighted today to begin a brand new series with you in the life of this congregation. We are in the letter of Ephesians. You could turn in your Bibles, obviously, to Ephesians or use those pew Bibles in front of you. You're welcome to also read along with us in the bulletin. It's printed there for you. This letter is, uh, oh, well, it's just, it's one that's meant so much to me over the years. Um, sometimes when you read the Bible um, and you go to read the Bible, you, you sometimes don't always know what to read. Um, and sometimes you need maybe a break for where it is that you've, you've been in, in the Bible. When that happens for, for Nate, Ephesians often shows up. It's often the place that I, I turn for a personal spiritual encouragement. Um, phrases and uh, truths of uh, the Lord from this particular letter have ministered to me uh, from, from early, early days. And I go back to it with, with fondness. And I've, I've never preached the, the letter of Ephesians uh, before. Um, and so I, I enter, you know, when you love something like a like a passage of scripture like this, and you're, you're, you're going to preach it. This is a preacher disease thing, you understand. But um, you get excited about that, that letter, and you're, you're preparing, and you're thinking about it. But you're also with some fear and trepidation, because you're like, this may be my only shot to preach this uh, letter. And, and Lord, I want to be faithful to it. I, I, want, I want something of the overflow of the abundance of grace that has been imparted to me through this letter um, to be overflowing into the life of your people in a faithful way. And I felt that poignantly in uh, preparing for this series, which is, which is one reason why we're just, we're just inching into it today. Do you, do you see that? We're just looking at, at two verses. We just want to orient to this wonderful uh, letter of Ephesians uh, today, uh, asking the Lord to uh, begin a, um, a wonderful work in our lives together as a congregation as we embark on what we said last week, one writer calls the crown jewels of the Apostle Paul's writing. Undoubtedly, right, Romans, his magisterial, uh, theologically rich letter with all of the detailed intricacies, but, but Ephesians is like a, it's like, a, it's like a smaller Romans a bit. It covers similar territory in a uniquely Ephesian way, but with a kind of richness and poignancy and sweetness that I, I don't know that we find any other place in, in Paul's writing. And so delighted to be in this letter uh, with you. Let's turn our attention to these first couple of verses here in Ephesians chapter 1. And let's, let's, let's see... What the Lord, by the power of His Spirit, has for us right now in Ephesians 1, 1 and 2. This is God's Word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, 
but the word of our God will stand forever. Father in heaven, let this word stand in our hearts today. Come and move about us through the power of the Spirit as Christ stands even to make intercession for us. Would today we meet you, the living God, in this your word. We pray it in your holy name. Amen. It was a handful of years ago now, well, actually longer than I'd like to admit probably, when I was at a pastor's conference, a minister who had been in the ministry for 40 years was nearing retirement and had been asked by this particular conference to share with us lessons that he had learned over 40 years of pastoral ministry. I was uh, in seminary at the time, um, feels like many years ago, and, and was eager to hear what this, this man would share. With, with him being years of a pastor, me in a wannabe pastor status, pursuing pastoral ministry, I wanted to sit at his feet, I wanted to learn from him, what, what should I know about ministry? Well, many jewels fell from his lips that day, there's no doubt about that, but one moment in the whole journey as he went church by church, location by location, talking about the specific ways that the Lord ministered through congregations while he was there, but, but even more richly, things he learned from those congregations and those experiences in ministry. He came to one point in the retelling of that story, and a smile came across his face. And he said to us, hey, can I tell you guys a, a secret? He said, you're not supposed to, as a minister, have favorites among the churches that you serve. But I'm going to be honest with you, the church I'm about to tell you about, it is my sweetheart church. He used that phrase, it is my sweetheart church. And, and you could tell, like he couldn't, you know, he, he looked like, a, he looked like a, you know, a, man, a young man on the, you know, the cusp of love. Like he mentioned his beloved's name and there was a little smile on his face as he said it. It was his sweetheart church. When you turn to the letter of Ephesians and you listen to the Apostle Paul speak to the church at Ephesians, you catch something of what I think is the heart of a minister in relationship to his sweetheart church. Ephesus and the church at Ephesus was Paul's sweetheart church. The church where he ministered longer than in any other church that he was, he was ever a part of. He was in Ephesus for three years. And Paul, as you know, was a serial church planner. He, he was walking around with his hair on fire most of the time. He was in a place, and then he was in another place, and then he was in another place. But it was in Ephesus where he stayed for three years, raised up those elders, planted that congregation, and there was a near and dear relationship that he shared with the longevity of that congregation, even the concerns he had with that congregation, concerns that actually show up, don't they? in the opening letters to the churches in Revelation. Concerns about the health of the church at, at Ephesus. It was the church ultimately that his own child in the faith, Timothy, would, would pastor and, be, be, uh, and make an indelible impression. Clearly, this was a church that Paul loved. But we, we know that not just from the anecdotal kind of pieces, these deep connections, his longevity there. We know that from the way 
that he reacts and responds to that church as presented in Acts chapter 20. The Apostle Paul, after ministering there for a period of time, was gone and then returns to visit the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 in what is one of the most tender and precious moments that we read anywhere uh, in the Scripture. Paul has come back. He's on his way to another place, but he stops over because he just longs to check on the church at Ephesus, and he meets with the elders, those elders that he helped raise up and establish. And as he meets with them, he recounts and rehearses with them his ministry. Uh, the challenges and, and joys that they shared together, how he preached to them the whole counsel of, of God. And then he charges those elders. He gives them a, a steely charge because he knows that there's going to be times of attack that are going to come upon the church at Ephesus. And this pagan ancient city is going to, going, to, going to lay siege in a variety of ways against the gospel. And so he calls them to shepherd the flock of God whom Jesus has purchased with his own blood. And then at the very end of his challenge there in Acts chapter 20, we see that that tender moment that I must admit when I read it, there's, there's, there's a number of places in the Scripture I find it hard not to tear up. One is when, when Joseph is restored with his father and his brothers. It's difficult not to lose it there. But in Acts chapter 20 at the end when he is going to push off from the seashore from Ephesus, Ephesus there on the Aegean Sea, on that, that, that eastern side of the Aegean Sea on the coast, as he's pushing off from there, he says, uh, or Luke, I should say, recounts this moment. It says that Paul knelt down and he prayed with them all. There was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and they kissed him. Being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken. That they would not see his face again. This was, this was as good as the, the swan song of, of the Apostle Paul in his relationship to the church that he loved most dearly. It was as if he was on a deathbed. They would not see his face again. They would have that charge ringing in their ears for the remainder of their life as elders. With the sweetness of the relationship that Paul enjoyed with the church at Ephesus. This was his sweetheart church. And so not surprisingly... The letter of Ephesians comes to us as a, an epistle of love, an epistle of a, of a, of a minister in, in love with the congregation, of uh, carried along on the wings of the Holy Spirit, treasuring and wanting to see them grow more into the likeness of Jesus, to become as what will be one of the main themes in the book of Ephesians, to grow into that which they already are in the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to see them grow all of the more. And Paul is the right man to write that letter. Not merely because Paul knows this congregation so well and loves them so deeply, but because Paul knows the change that the gospel can bring. As we look at this letter of Ephesians today in just these two verses, I want you to, I want you to see the story that lays behind these couple of verses and the hints of the whole story of, of, of Ephesus and the hints of the doctrine and truths of the letter to the Ephesians that, are, that, are, that is just laden right here in these first two verses. And I think it would be most helpful maybe to think of it around this theme of change. Change. Paul is a man who is a changed 
man. And he is writing to a people who are a changed people. And he is going to write to them about the power that changes us. That's really what is happening right now in these verses. The changed man Paul writing to the changed people, the Ephesian church, about the power that changes, namely the gospel itself. Let's start with this changed man, the apostle Paul. Notice right there, just verse 1, that very first line. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Now that may not appear like much at first reading. You might, you might have a tendency in your Bible reading, especially in these letters of the Apostle Paul, of just sort of like skipping over or just skimming those introductory marks. Oh yes, it is a letter of the Apostle Paul. I want to pause and just say, who is Paul? Who is Paul? Do you remember who Paul is? Well, he is the man who's formerly known as Saul. That's who Paul is. He is the man who is formerly known as Saul. We meet him in Acts chapter 7. We meet him on the heels of those seven men who were chosen by the apostles to to serve the orphans and and widows in Jerusalem. We read about that in Acts chapter 6. And then in Acts chapter 7, one of those men who was appointed by the elders was named Stephen. He's described as a man who is full of the Spirit and of grace. Stephen speaks in Acts chapter 7 this this marvelous uh, sermon. I don't know what else to call it other than than a sermon where he goes through the whole of the Old Testament bringing to bear specifically the rejection of the Jewish people against the Lord Jesus Christ and arguing that this has been their spirit throughout the Old Testament. They're constantly rejecting God's prophets. They're constantly rejecting God's message. They're hardened against him. And Stephen presses in to the Jewish people there in Jerusalem, and he's, in a sense, wanting them to come to saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that doesn't happen at that moment in Stephen's declaration of the truth. And in fact, what happens is more along the line of an angry mob is started. And that angry mob comes and runs Stephen out of the city and outside the city begins to pick up stones to stone him, and you know that that also is one of the most tender, difficult, grief-stricken, sorrowing moments and moving moments to read of Stephen's final words as he looks up into heaven and he sees the heavens themselves open up and he knows that his own spirit is going to be received into the heavens as he begins to die through being the first martyr of the Christian faith recorded in the Scripture. And you know what we're told in that passage? That looking on approvingly was a young man named Saul. That's the first time we meet him. In the the very next unfolding of the text, we find that this man, Saul, is going from house to house. You should read that as house churches. People gathering in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Meeting together in fellowship and in worship. Receiving instruction from the apostles. He's going house to house and he's finding these so-called followers of the way, as they were described there in the book of, of Acts. And he's, he's dragging them out and he's bringing them uh, before um, the court system in order that they might be imprisoned. And yet, this Saul, on that journey, 
to ravage the church further in the very next chapter meets the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus as he's going to be a persecutor of the church and and seek to destroy these Christ followers because he believes they're polluting the historic religion of, of Israel, these followers of Abraham and these keepers of the covenant and the law of God. He doesn't see the connection with Christ. He's not savingly embracing Christ at this point. He's blinded to the reality of the fulfillment of Jesus. He's going to attack them. As he goes, Jesus, the risen Christ, appears to him. And he falls flat on his face on the road to Damascus. And in that moment, Jesus calls him in conviction. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And in very short order, this Saul, this Pharisee of Pharisees, this persecutor of the church, gives his life away to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's radically converted right there on the road to Damascus and then is credentialed and commissioned as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will move from being persecutor of the church to proclaimer of the gospel that the church holds in no time flat by encountering the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we find is that the church early on doesn't believe it even happened. They're they're like, oh, this is just one of his ploys. He's now going to act like he's one of us in order to destroy us. And you begin to see the book of Acts increasingly distance themselves from his, his, his given Jewish name of Saul, who was, of course, the name of the first king of Israel. And, and to move to the name of, of Paul. Uh, probably so that all the bad connotations that go along with Saul begin to fade. And with the change of his name from Saul to Paul, what we're actually seeing is the change of a man. We're seeing a new creature in Christ emerge. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Saul, who is now Paul, is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ by the will of God. Did you hear what he's saying there? An apostle. An apostle is a sent one. He's a messenger. But more than that, he's a representative. He's one who comes as a as an advocate, almost as a delegate from Jesus himself, to be with Paul exercising the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ as his, as his faithful messenger. To be with the Apostle Paul was to be, as it were, in the presence of one who has authority to speak on the behalf of Christ himself. That's why as we're reading the book of Ephesians, we receive the book of Ephesians as the very word of God. Now, the Scripture tells us that these apostles wrote down uh, the words that were given to them being carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what the letter of Ephesians is. It is the very word of Christ to us, even as it came through the Apostle Paul. He was and is uh, the one who wrote most of your New Testament. The one who became the leading church planner in all of the first century in those early days of the kingdom of God growing under the name of Christ. It was Paul who was the face in very real sins of the movement of this young ministry. Paul was a changed man. And we see in this text that he has not come to them to speak on his own authority. He is coming by the will of God. It was not he 
who decided, so to speak, for Christ. It was Christ who had decided for Paul when he encountered him that day on the road to Damascus. He was the one who was brought by Christ into saving relationship and into commissioned ministry as an apostle. Now, not only do we see here, though, a a changed man, the, the writer in this letter of Ephesians, we also see a changed people. And this is really the recipients who this letter is actually for, and it's for this Ephesian church. Notice the way that that Paul writes it. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, you, you wouldn't notice it right at the very beginning unless you thought about it for a little bit, but I see another name change in this line. To the, to the saints. That's not, a, that's not a name that they would have been called by birth. That's not a name that they would have been called by, by pedigree or, or a heritage. Uh, this is not a family name, saints. It's not a football team, saints. This is, a, this is a strongly rich biblical title, name, moniker that's been given to those who are true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you hear the word saint, I don't imagine you just think true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ because you, you might actually identify yourself as a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I was to say a saint is a normal Christian, you'd say, hmm, I don't know about that. But when the Bible uses the word saint, that's exactly how it means it. It means that, that, that you are those who have been literally set apart unto God by His love. You have been set apart unto God by His love. Isn't that what happened to Paul? God chose him. God came in and, and rescued him and, and then commissioned him. By His love, He brought him in and He set him apart unto Himself. Don't you hear in that word saint, the word sanctify? You hear the word sanctify in there to set something apart? That's, that's exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying, I'm writing to you and I'm reminding you as I'm writing to you, you're not just people. You're not just citizens. You're not just the heritage of your family. You're not just your accomplishments and the degrees on your wall. You're saints. I'm writing to you who are the saints in, in Ephesus. And, and that's really important for us to hear because when you hear the word saint, most of you, were, you're, most of you are probably like the man I talked to this week. I was having a discussion with a, with a man about a situation. It was a conflict. And he was telling me about the, the other party. And the other party in his presentation um, had done lots of things that were, that were wrong. And, and he went on for a while about the things that they had done wrong. And then he paused as if some of us have probably done when we've, we're venting a little bit about a situation and maybe about a, about a particular person and the frustration we experience with them. And he paused and, and then he said, now, now listen, I, I don't want you to think that I'm a saint. And I, of course, I didn't stop him, but he, but he, but he, he was a Christian, and I, I hated to, you know, I hated to burst his bubble, but I do think of him as a saint, and 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 God thinks of him as a saint. God calls him a, a, a saint here and there. Now, I didn't do that preacher thing on him at that moment. I, I just, I just received because I knew what he meant. He he meant I don't want you to think that I'm perfect. 
And then I, you know, then I didn't have the heart to tell him I would never think that. <laughs> like, we, like, we're just missing each other all the way around here. It's like, I do think of you as a saint, but I don't think of you as perfect. So we've got to define our terms here. Uh, these are saints. They, they have been set apart unto God by His love. That's what He wants you to know. Do you know, today you are saints if you're in Christ Jesus in Franklin, Tennessee. That's who you are. Uh, you're, not, you're not trying to be a saint. It's not a performance. It's not something you do. It's not a canonization that the church later tells you, oh, I think you've reached that status. It's not your grandmother. Oh, she was such a saint. Right? No, no, no. If you're in Christ Jesus, you are set apart by God's love un- unto Him. That's your, that's your status. Now, what I want you to see in part there is that He's saying in a very real sense, who you are is, is bound up in who Christ is. He says it very clearly, doesn't he? I write to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. There it is. You're a saint not because you had an amazing week and you are morally impeccable. That's not, because, that's not why you're a saint. You're a saint because you are in Christ Jesus. His righteousness has been fully credited to your account. The removal of the penalty of your sin and its verdict is complete. You are set apart in love unto Him. Right? That's what it means. You are a saint. And He's very real saying, I want you to know where that comes from. You can't say, oh, I'm a saint. No, it's a humble reality, but a confident one. I'm a saint because of Jesus. All of what it is that He's done for me. But I am a saint. I'm confident in it because it's finished. It's not something that can change. As if I go, huh, I think I'm a little more saint today than I was yesterday. No, you don't get a little more or a little less of saint. You're either a saint or you're not. It's a position. It's, it's, it actually is where it is that you are. It doesn't have gradations. It's been won for you positionally by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we were talking about this in the men's Bible study this week, and I think it's worth noting it. If I were to ask you, how is your relationship with Christ? Some of you would go, it's not real good right now. I've been stuck in a litany of sins. I've really not been actively repenting. I've, I've kind of just been giving in to things. And I, 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 it's not real good. I've not been reading my Bible. I've not been praying. And you begin to think about all the things that you do wrong or the things you should be doing right. And, and you connect that immediately to your relationship with Jesus. Now, listen, there's a right way to talk about that. It's called sanctification. We're going to talk about it a lot. Your dynamic relationship, closeness to the Lord, and your sense of growth in Him ebbs and flows... So sometimes two steps forward, one step back, it feels very much like a relationship. There's a dynamic experientially that's involved. That's not what we're talking about here. We'll get to that. Another way to describe your relationship with Christ is, I'm a saint. No matter what my day has been. On my worst day, I'm a saint. On my best day, I'm no more of a saint. I can't lose it. I can't earn it. I'm a saint. I'm completely hidden with Christ in God. All of my identity, all that I am, fully bound up in Him. That's what Paul is saying here. You you see, you might say something like, you know, how's your marriage? Oh, do we really have to talk about my marriage? Right? 
Or we could say, how's your marriage? I'm married. I'm married. And on the bad days, I'm married. And on the good days, I'm married. And on the bad days, when I feel as if the marriage is falling apart, she's no less my wife than on the days that are good in our family. And knowing that that relationship is held together by a bond and a vow that is not to be broken is what induces me and encourages me on those bad days to not give up, but to actually have my heart filled with joy over the fact that I've been a terrible husband and I'm a husband who is still loved. That's who you are in Christ, you see. You're a saint. You're a saint in Christ Jesus. It's a wonderful truth, isn't it? It's a marvelous truth. Doesn't that renew your heart? When you begin to see the beauty of God's love for you, do you see, there's no way you can lose that status of saint. Do you know what would need to happen for you to lose the status of saint? Jesus would have to lose the throne of heaven. That's how how locked away it is. That's not going to happen, my friends. You have nothing to fear. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that He is Lord. And you're hidden in Him. You're a saint in Christ Jesus. That means that part of you is actually, if I can say it this way, out of this world. Literally, like you're you're positionally in the Lord Jesus Christ right now. It's as if you're in the throne room of heaven. Because you are in the throne room of heaven with Jesus there. That's, that's, That's who you're in. You're yoked to him. You're united to him. And Paul wants you to know, listen... Live like a citizen of heaven. Live like one whose future is utterly secure. One who is, whose identity is completely bound up in the perfection and righteousness of Jesus. Because, friends, let me tell you, that's more true than anything you think about yourself. Anything that you think about yourself. There are things about yourself that you think, oh, you know, I am an Enneagram number three. I, I am a, you know, INTJ, you know, I just, I'm definitely that. Or I am the son of my father and the daughter of my mother or whatever it is. And you go back to your history. I am a seventh generation X, Y, or Z. That's what you think you are. More than any of those things that you think you are, you are in Christ. You are a saint in the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be wonderful to actually live who you are? Live who you are. That's what this letter is about, you see. You're a saint in Christ Jesus. Now, part of you is out of this world. Part of you is in heaven. In a very real sense. In the sense of, we're saying it theologically, the whole of you is bound up in Christ in heaven. But listen, you haven't totally gotten there yet. Notice how the Apostle Paul hints at the message of this whole letter. I write to you who are in Ephesus. That doesn't sound like heaven. Their feeders are on the ground. They are a people who are in this world. They are, they are a people with challenges and difficulties and oppositions. I mean, that, that town of Ephesus, it's wonderful in terms of its architectural scheme. I mean, the temple of Artemis was amazing. The affluence of, of, of Ephesus in the day in which Paul is writing is among the third, fourth, fifth in, in the world. 
It's a, it's a massive city. It's a, that seaport, a GNC city, a thoroughfare of cultural crossroads, a, a place where anybody would want to go and buy and sell and make their wares. It was a religious city of depth and of, of great complexity. You could go and find anything you wanted there. We'll, we'll talk about that more. Uh, but Paul here wants them to know that you're not only in Christ in heaven, the fullness of your identity bound up in Him, but you're a people with your feet on the earth on mission in Ephesus. You've got a calling right now before you. You're not a people who are so out of this world that you're no good for the world. You are a people who are in heaven in order to do the earth good. You're to be in the world but not of the world. You're to be a people who, who, who are not so isolated from the world that you're, you're in a sense, oh, I'm just ready to escape. You're also not a people who are so melded into the world that you're not distinguishable from them. You are a people who are in the world but are not of the world. You are a people who are in Christ and in Ephesus at the same time. You know, that's exactly who you are. It's exactly who I am. We are people who are in Christ and in Franklin, Tennessee or wherever it is that you're from. You are a person who, at one level, is completely righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ and are very much in process uh, in your own sanctification and growth. Both of those two things are, are happening here. The Apostle Paul is saying, listen, I want you to know, in this letter, I'm going to teach you things about being in Christ. In fact, the first three chapters of the letter of Ephesians is about being in Christ and all the riches of the gospel. And then he's like, I want to train you also about what being in Christ in Ephesus needs to look like. And that's really what chapters 4 through 6 are all about. You know, by the, by, by the first part, it's these soaring sections of the gospel of Jesus Christ, unpacked in great detail from redemption to adoption to, to election and predestination to the richness of grace and mercy to salvation by faith alone. Like all of these incredible doctrines he's going to talk about. And then he's like, by chapter 5, he's like, yeah... Wives, submit to your husbands. You're like, whoa, how do we get there? Well, that's where Paul goes. Uh, but servants and slaves, how do you live in the world? To put on the whole armor of God. Like all of these very practical, like they live in Ephesus. And they're trying to live out their in Christness in the midst of a fallen and broken world. The reality of this letter is that he is writing as a changed man to a changed people who continue to need to change. That should, that should feel similar. That, that we, are, we are not there yet, are we? That there's, there's growth. Isn't there still growth in your life needed? Places that you go, I, th- I thought I'm at the, I'm at the age getting to the age, I thought I would be further along than I am. You ever thought that to yourself? You know, you, when you're young, you say things like, oh, I'll get to that. Oh, that'll happen, right? That sin will get licked. This, this thing will happen. And then, then you get old, you're like, I'm probably going to my grave with that one. Right? Those things begin to change. Change is still needed, isn't it? Change, change is still needed. Paul knows that. That's why he's writing Ephesians. He he wants you to hear from a changed man towards a changed people so you can better understand the power and the agent of change, even the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice how he takes us there in verse 2. Grace 
to you, he says. Now, some of you, some of you know ancient letter writing. You, you know that it had a form. It had a form where the writer introduced himself or herself right at the very beginning. Do you see that Paul did that? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, that's what he did. Now, we don't do that, do we, when we write letters? We, we say, dear so-and-so, and where do we put our name? Right Down at the bottom, all, all the best, yours truly. And we, we put our name down at the bottom. And when you look at a letter, like you get a letter in the mail, what do you, what do, you do? You, you look at, oh, it's dear, it is to me, and then you look at the bottom. Right? You want to know who's writing this. Uh, and what they, they got all of that out of the way in the ancient letter writing tradition. They just put it all at the top. Like, hey, it's me, I'm Paul. That's who's writing to you. And you are, this is how I understand who I'm writing to, you are the saints who are in, in Ephesus, who are in Christ Jesus, right? Or faithful in Christ Jesus, full of faith here. That's who I'm writing to. And here, here's, though, where he breaks tradition. Where, where he goes in a direction that the, the readers would not have typically um, expected. Because the word that you would expect to hear the Apostle Paul write there would be kerosene or greetings or hello, something like that. And Paul says, grace to you. He says, grace to you. He doesn't say greetings to you. He says, grace to you. At this point, the Apostle Paul is telling us what the letter is going to drive home. I have not just simply written to you to give you a report, to update you with salutations and greetings. I am writing a letter to you that you might grow in grace. And I'm praying it in a blessed form in the greeting for you. Grace to you. Charis is what I want for you, to grow more into that which you already have in Christ Jesus. Grace to you. And I want more than just, as it were, the substance and the reality of grace. I want the fruit of grace. Do you know what the fruit of grace is? Peace. Peace to you. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want peace to you. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, I'd love some peace. <laughs> I'd love some peace and quiet, right? In my home, I think of that sometimes. I'd love some peace and quiet in this, in this home. Where does one go to get peace and quiet? You know, sometimes we think in those, those terms. That's not what he means here. He's not talking about a subjective feeling. But Paul, Paul wants you to know that you have peace. And you must grow into the reality of the peace that you have already in Christ Jesus. For when Jesus came, He reconciled you to God. He made peace, the writer of Colossians tells us, by the blood of the cross. In Romans chapter 5, we're told that we are justified by faith. Therefore, we have peace with God. Now, do subjective feelings of peace come? They do. Let me also tell you, they go. Have you noticed this? Yes. They, they seem to go quickly. This is my own experience. And they seem to come very episodically. What he wants to say here is that objectively there is a peace that you have 
that is yours already in Christ Jesus based on the grace that you've received. I want you to grow into the objective peace that is already yours in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you. Do you know if that is, if you're wondering where does the subjective experience of peace come from, it comes when you ponder and meditate and commune with the God who has given you grace and peace that will not change or move. And when you know that to be the case, you'll begin to experience the feeling of peace, the restfulness of peace, the real peace that comes from Christ. This is the power of change. Now, can't you see it? I mean, you, got, you, you thought, right? He has two verses. This sermon will be shorter. Right? He has two verses. This, this is Paul's letters. These are the way that they are. They're so chock full. They're so rich of beautiful truth and theology that is immediately applicable to our hearts and our lives. But as we conclude our time together in these first two verses, I want you to see Paul's name changed. The Ephesians' names changed. But friends, listen, your name has changed if you're in him. You may think of yourself as, as Karen or John or Beal or, or, or Susie or whoever. You know who you are? You're a saint. You're a Christian. That's who you are. You are a Christian. You are growing into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That which He's begun in you, He will bring to completion. The day of completion, you will see Jesus face to face for you will be what? You'll be like Him. That's who you are. You are the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ and you're growing into it by the power of His Holy Spirit. Your name is not what you think it is. You are a saint of the living God. You are a Christian. The rest of the letter the Apostle Paul wants to tell us, here's what it means to be a Christian. Here's what it means to be a Christian. And he wants us to know the grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen. I would ask you as we conclude, would you pray that the Lord would renew our hearts in what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be the church, what it means to live the Christian life. Some of us have walked with Jesus for many years, and we may have become numb to some of these doctrines. Some of us are faking like we're walking with Jesus, and we're not really. And we need, to, we need the grace of repentance. And this letter, the Lord might use it through the power of His Spirit to bring us there. Some of us think we know Jesus and we don't. And by God's grace, salvation would come in and through this letter. Would you pray for that? You don't know the stories of everybody sitting to the left and right of you, but I'll tell you this. They're not who they think that they are. And they know it if they're honest with themselves. And they wish there were things that were different. And if they're a Christian, they want to be more like Christ. If they're not a Christian, they're trying to figure out what it is they ought to be. And one thing's for sure, they're staring down the eternity that's before them, then the barrel of death is coming. Now is the time for our salvation. Now is the time to be serious in our followership, in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. We need the Holy Spirit to come and do this. Would you pray for it? Would you pray for it? Do you know the Lord loves to answer that kind of prayer? He loves to answer that kind of prayer. That's the kind of prayer that's according to His will. You're praying what is His planned future for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. Pray it until you pray it. Until it is so by God's grace. Father in heaven, would you cause this kind of 
urgency and, and joyous urgency to rise up within our hearts as we pray that you would grace us in great measure with the Spirit. You would awaken us to the richness of this truth. Lord, we just scratched the surface, but oh, how sweet the surface is. As we go into the weeks to come, would you go before us? Would you lay the spiritual foundations in our souls? Would you cause us to meditate on your word day and night? Would we be prayerful and dependent as we come into your house to worship you? And would we find that we're not the same people at the end of Ephesians that we were at the beginning? Because we have met with the living God. Oh, Lord Jesus, send the hound of heaven to accomplish it. We long to know you, to meet with you. We long to be like you. This letter has been used by you to change untold thousands throughout church history. Why not us? Why not now? That you would use this letter in just such a fashion. Oh, Lord Jesus, hear this prayer. And hear the many prayers of your people who agree with it. As we continue, as it were, to give you no rest, as the prophet tells us not to but to constantly come to you with our prayers according to your will until they're answered. Oh, Lord Jesus, hear that prayer we pray in your holy name. Amen.